Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode five of series four of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. How do you define and develop the culture required to deliver on your organization's purpose? How do you involve employees? And how do you measure the impact to ensure that you're on the right track? My guest on today's episode of the podcast is Tanush Kaplashrami, and she's tackled all of these challenges in her role as Group Head of HR at Standard Chartered, and also ensured that HR has taken the lead role in driving employee experience throughout the bank. In our conversation, Tanush and I discuss how the CHRO partners successfully with the CEO and executive team. We also talk about how employees help co-create the people deal at Standard Chartered. And we look at the role HR has taken to drive employee experience throughout the bank. We also talk about the emerging skills that are required in HR. And that builds up nicely to our final question, where we look into the crystal ball, like we do with all our guests on the podcast, and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for everyone in HR, particularly those involved in business and HR transformation, as well as those leading efforts in employee experience, people analytics, and other leadership roles within the function. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for series four of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Perceptix. Perceptix is the leading enterprise employee survey and people analytics platform, providing deep insights into an organization's people giving leaders the data and insight they need to improve the employee experience, predict challenges in the business, and drive strategic action to deliver improved business performance. As a strategic partner to hundreds of global enterprises, including nearly one third of the Fortune 100, Perceptix is challenging the status quo to help people and organizations thrive. Learn how your people data can be used to drive strategic action and improve business outcomes today by visiting perceptix.com. That's perceptics.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Tanush Kapil Ashrami, um, Group Director for HR at Standard Charter Bank, to the podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thank Tanish. you very much, David. Can we start by giving listeners a quick introduction to your background and your kind of vision for HR? Because I know you've had quite a good career, particularly in the banking sector. So thanks, David. I took on the Group HR Director role at, uh, at Standard Chartered January of this year. So I'm sort of still relatively new to the cohort. I was the head of talent learning culture for Standard Chartered before this. And uh, in a 20-year career, largely been in financial services, uh, worked with another big bank, various roles in HR uh, before joining Stanchart uh, two and a half years ago. Um, in the career that I've done, you know, as is typical of most CHROs, multidiscipline, but also fortunate enough to have done it across multiple markets. So I did 10 years in Asia, Singapore, Hong Kong, India. Uh, but then I've also spent time in the Middle East, uh, looking after the Africa and the Middle East business. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, that those cultures, I think, and some of the nuances that that brings to HR a bit later in our discussion. But firstly, we get a lot of questions, you know, what does a CHRO do? What are your main responsibilities? And how do you partner successfully with the, with the CEO and the, and the executive team? Some of it, I think, is very standard, right? A huge part of the role is partnering with uh, the CEO and colleagues on the management team, but also uh, playing a key role with, with the board uh, on, on a variety of sort of uh, people, culture-related issues. 
It's the advisory nature of the role, which is uh, personally most fulfilling and actually, if done well, can be quite valuable. Mm. And that involves high levels of trust, a really good understanding of business, and actually having that professional confidence around the tables that you uh, sit in. Everyone has the sort of competence uh, by the time you get to these levels. Yeah, of course. But it's the professional confidence and how that comes through in some of the conversations, which I think is quite important. And I think the business acumen thing is, 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 is important. And it's something that maybe that we've neglected a little bit in, in the HR field. Uh, One of the earliest things I did when I took on my big lead, uh, HR leadership role many years ago was got everyone in my team trained on reading a balance sheet. And it sounds a bit naff when you say it, but you'll be staggered at how many people in HR could not talk to you about how the business that they are in makes money. And since then, I've always done it. I always get massive teams, two and a half thousand people now, to, to talk about how to read a balance sheet, how does the bank make money, who are our customers, what do our customers want, and actually getting instilling that discipline is quite important when you talk about that professional confidence around the tables that we that we sit on. Now, I know when we spoke last week, we, you talked about how um, you know how you've actually helped develop the culture to, to deliver on the bank's purpose. Love to hear a little bit more about that because it was a fascinating conversation when we had it between the two of us. I think our listeners would love to hear about something. So, I mean, uh, David, hugely passionate about it. Uh, you know, I've thought very, very often that companies now very regularly have a chief culture officer. Uh, we took the decision and something I strongly believe in that we don't need that role in Standard Chartered because our CEO is the chief culture officer. You know, I think he is very clearly somebody who's passionate about the agenda, who's actually sort of not just role models it, but has, has endorsed and defined the container within which we are doing all of this work. Given the fact that the CEO has a massive number of priorities, he does uh, you know, lean on his team, in this case specifically me and my organization, to A, uh, advise him, yeah. uh, tell him what best practice looks like, but also help in execution of that agenda. So a, a big part of what the HR function is in service of is the cultural transformation of, of the bank. All of the work on culture is in service of improving our client service, uh, client experience, and ultimately our performance. So that's sort of the, 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 the massive underlying sort of statement. What did we do? Uh, culture's always been very important to Stanchart. We are 160 markets, 125 nationalities, 160-year heritage, always been important, but went through a very difficult phase. Like many uh, other banks, you know, it, it, it was an industry issue where both our performance but also our culture got questioned repeatedly. Um, we appointed a new group chief executive, um, towards the end of 2015, series of what I call mechanistic changes. So a new management team, um, um, you know, a rights issue, raising capital, uh, writing out bad debt, uh, making some fundamental structural decisions as far as our business is concerned. And once that first phase was over, our chief executive, Bill Winters, took a very conscious decision that the focus needed to turn now into how do we engage hearts and mind, and how do we get into the next and the really exciting phase where we transform the culture. So that's where the sort of burning platform yeah. came from. 
We started off by where I think is always a useful place to start by speaking to hundreds of our clients across the footprint. So pretty much in every market, we did client interviews. Uh, why do they bank with us? What is their feedback on us? How do they believe we have changed? All of that client feedback um, got uh, translated into a series of workshops in the market. Um, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? What do we need to change? And that then translated into what I call the ultimate exercise in brevity, where we tried to convert all of that insight into one word, which will actually be the sort of north star to all of this yeah. culture work. And that work was word was human. Yeah. You know, so we toyed with sort of international, we toyed with loads of words, and ultimately the one the board and the management team settled on looking at all of this insight was human. So we said we are uh, going to be a, a, a human bank, a human organization. As we launched that into the organization, two questions came up. Human in service of what and how do I do it? And it became quite clear to me at that time that we needed to do much more definitional work for it to stick. Yeah. Human in service of what became the work we did on redefining our purpose. So it was very clear that human in service of had to be the purpose of the bank. Uh, again, the work was done, the work on purpose was done much more top down. It was done with the board and the management team. And the question was very clear. If Stan Chart doesn't exist in the world, what difference does it make to the world? And, and actually, it's a very, it's actually a very profound question. Think, you know, yeah. if we don't exist as a bank, what difference will that make uh, to the world? And that led to us articulating our purpose. And we also looked at the client insights, you know, looked at our history, went into our archives. And, and the purpose was driving commerce and prosperity through our unique diversity. Um, prom uh, commerce plays to our trade origins, the role that we play in international trade. Prosperity is prosperity of individuals, nations, economies. And how we do it is through uh, our unique diversity, which is, which is, you know, within large global companies, truly differentiated. That was the first question, human in, uh, human in service of what? Yeah. The second question was, how do we do it? And there, as opposed to doing it top down, we decided that we are going to co-create it with all 86,000 employees. And we did a massive crowdsourcing piece of work, leveraging Perceptics, uh, who, who do our employee surveys, um, we had 94% people who responded to the crowdsourcing exercise. Yeah. Massive, got loads of data points. And then we did a classic machine learning algorithm to pull that down into a, a set of words, resulted in a cross-functional workshop for two days that helped create our valued behaviors. Valued behaviors are not values uh, because values are deeply personal and sometimes a bit moralistic. Valued behaviors are the standards of behaviors that we want everyone to live by that will help us create the right culture in the company. So how we do it is by living the valued behaviors. Massive body of work in the last 18 months embedding those valued behaviors around uh, across all our processes. So how we hire, how we promote, you know, our training programs, um, you know, the messaging sort of across the organization. The last two bits, which I would say are really important pieces, is we then focused our energy on employee experience. 
So if valued behaviors are the standards we expect from our colleagues, what do they expect from us in return? Yeah. And it's a really, I mean, it's a classic EVP question, but it at its heart is a two-way people deal and a much more adult-adult relationship in the organization. So classic EVP work, but helped us define a people deal that we went, that we became quite public with in the organization to say, these are the standards of behaviors. This is what you get from the organization being an employee. So, so that was the second uh, piece of alignment. And the last piece we did was uh, aligning that work with the external brand work. So we did a brand refresh in 2018. All of the brand work has three pillars, which are the same pillars uh, as our valued behaviors. Um, and that got launched externally. Um, some of it you see in, in the Liverpool uh, uh, sort of, if you go to the Liverpool sort of Instagram page, a lot of there is hashtag never settle, which is one of our uh, valued behaviors. And actually what we were able to do is our client's experience of us as a brand got aligned with our standards of behaviors internally. So it was the classic alignment between client experience and employee experience. And that was, uh, I think, where we have sort of come to in the journey. So that leads on nicely to the conversation around employee experience. When we spoke last week, you, you quite rightly said that only 18% of the employee experience really comes from HR processes and, and technology. So I'd really like to understand how you involve the rest of the business in, in, in kind of that whole employee experience journey. Yeah, I mean, I will start off by saying, David, and again, we discussed it, employee experience is absolutely critical. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, we've been talking a lot about it in our industry. We've been talking a lot about it within Standard Chartered Bank. And, um, you know, the, I talk about having a, a product owner mindset. And, um, you know, if you look at our consumers today, um, and if, if the way they are consuming products externally, uh, experience is a massive part of it. If you don't focus on experience, it's really a race to the bottom. Yeah. Um, I use uh, product ownership quite deliberately because we have to remember that in HR, we are also product owners where employment is the product. And one of the things I, I keep telling my team is some of the principles around client centricity, how do we design products, how do we think of experience, need to be absolutely the same. So, you know, that for me is, is almost a starting pitch. Uh, I quoted to you a research, which I must say uh, didn't surprise me, but the numbers did sort of uh, stagger me a little bit. We focus so much of HR transformation on our systems and our processes but actually having a really slick system where you can go and apply leave and your manager approves it, while it's really important, that does contribute maximum 18%, up to 18% to the overall experience. So, you know, if, if you look at the workforce today and the future of work, uh, there are so many other things, right? I mean, it, it, it starts off with uh, premises, technology, collaboration tools, right? The, peop the way people are engaging outside of work. They want that same experience inside work. Yep, that's right. We found job impact is one of the top five EVP drivers for us in Stanchart. For colleagues to be able to deliver the best job impact, they need slick org design. They need efficient work processes. They need better technology. So when you start thinking of employee experience as a collection of all of this, some of it owned by HR, many not, mm -hmm. 
the question really comes to who really owns employee experience in the company. And, you know, I've led quite a bit of discussion around this, um, around our management team. I do believe having the alignment really helps. So having a very clear purpose uh, and an EVP and a CVP, your employee value proposition and customer value proposition aligned to that purpose ensures that employee experience doesn't become an HR thing. It becomes the thing in the company. And I think, you know, some of the definitional work that I spoke about is actually quite important to get, get the narrative inside the organization aligned. So when we talk about employee experience now, uh, our head of technology, our COO, head of property supply chain management, use the same language to talk about it that I do, and which is hugely important. So, so I think that that's the first thing. The second thing that we have done, to be fair, we are still in the process of doing, is actually mapping out uh, all of our employee journeys. And so if you sort of map out the employee journeys with specific focus on moments that matter, actually it becomes a much more cross-functional conversation because a, a, a large part of some of the journeys are HR-owned, but there are large parts of the, the journey which are not owned by HR. Yeah. So mapping the journey and bringing in other stakeholders in the debate, keeping in mind how our client value proposition coincides with the employee value proposition is, is, I think, the way we are approaching it. Finally, it's the power of data and analytics, right? We have been able to conclusively prove that where we have evidenced higher employee experience, it has resulted in higher client experience. And actually, bringing those data points together uh, in, in service of the broader culture conversation, throwing that back into the organization and actually making those uh, relations, the correlation between them, I think is quite important as well. So it's almost like HR is the conductor of, of defining and delivering the employee experience, but you need the orchestra, which is the rest of the business, with you to help A, define it, but then the delivery part. Absolutely. And as I keep saying, how to get the organization to the place that employee experience is not an HR thing. It is the thing in it the is. company. requires huge orchestration, I think, by the HR organization. And in doing that, what, what challenges, some of the challenges you had to overcome? I mean, the challenges are many, right? You know, we talk about resistance to change. We talk about a generation of leaders, and I put myself in them, who grew up in a very different world. Mm. Uh, we are all now leading and managing um, uh, uh, the next generation of workforce that's completely different. So uh, it, that resistance to that change, not knowing what good looks like. So, you know, how do we generate those proof points back into the organization so that people experience what good looks like? Um, is a big challenge. I mean, there are three big mindset shifts we are talking about within the organization, technology, client centricity, and, and productivity. And when I, when, I, when I talk about technology, we are talking about it in the context of disruption. So it, it's not just plugging a technology, it's how do we do. If you look at the three mindset shifts, uh, they require a very different level of thinking, which involves uh, just reskilling, retooling, having a very different conversation with leaders at all levels in the company. You know, and that thing about, you know, as you talked about those of us from a slightly older generation like me, not only are we having to learn new skills, we're also having to change the way we've done things in the past. Um, 
And it's, it's you know, we're going to talk about a little bit about that from an HR perspective in a minute. But what I was really interested in one of the conversations we had last week is some of the new skills coming into HR. Yeah. So your head of employee experience has got a very different background from 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 most people within the HR function. Yeah, I, I was very clear that in the employee experience lead role, we need to get somebody who's got a product design mindset. And, you know, we've got somebody who doesn't have an HR background does not even have a banking background and actually comes from a pure product design experience. Um, and what he's been able to do in a very short period of time is bring that discipline in. So yeah. we are using ethnographic research. We are doing lots of product trials. You know, we are speaking to consumers and users very differently. Um, um, and I think that's been a, a real learning. It's been a massive learning for me. Uh, you know, what excites me the most uh, after 20 years of being in this business is the amount of unlearning I'm having to do to be able to design an organization that's going to be fit for purpose for the next 160 years. I'll give you a simple example, and this comes to the point around proof points. We realize that people leaders... Um, of, of a certain generation needed to experience uh, some of this themselves. Um, we have got, uh, we did a new piece of technology. It's sort of a uh, walk me, which basically is now sitting over our core HR processes so that leaders and colleagues, as opposed to going through traditional uh, channels, i.e. intranet sites, massive policy documents, or calling up people in HR, actually have a very intuitive process that guides them through basic HR processes. Also, the process, which is system agnostic. So, you know, the, the, the process takes them, you know, little blurbs, uh, little, little head question marks, guides them through the process. We ran that process through media. 90% of our colleagues engaged with that technology as compared to the same time last year, where 13% accessed our traditional policy documents, intranet site. But we were also able to calculate that for the 90% over that two-month window where everyone does their media conversation, by leveraging the technology, it saved them 40 minutes of their time over that two-month period. And suddenly, the conversation moves away from sexy technology Two, how does that experience and, and that ease of experience translates to greater productivity, giving people that time to have 40 minutes extra to have better quality conversation and throwing that back into the organization is the kind of stuff I have learned from my head of employee experience, you know, who thinks of it much more like uh, designing a product as opposed to traditional writing out a policy document. And a great way to break down some of the silos that we traditionally had in HR is by bringing people with with experience from other other sectors and, and other areas, really. Yeah. And we see it a lot in the work we do at Insight Two 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 in the people analytics space. You know, yeah. a lot of the people analytics leaders haven't got a background in HR yeah. um, because you've got people in HR who have the background in HR, yeah. and those two then skill sets can can kind of come together. Um, so I'd be interested. I appreciate that it's quite early days in in the, in the kind of redesign. But what are some of the sort of early um, insights that you're getting from the from the new people deal at the, at the bank? Well, I mean, we have very recently, about three months now, completed our big employment survey of this year. And if you go back to the beginning of the culture journey, which is sort of three, three and a half years now, um, yeah. 
uh, actually, some of the proof points are really impressive. When we started the culture journey, we said we also designed a dashboard by which we measure progress. Again, something I think we in HR need to get much better at. And we said, what are the three questions we are going to answer with this culture work? Are we becoming a better place to bank? Um, are we becoming a better place to work? And recognizing that change in behavior is implicit in answering both these questions, are we showing, are we demonstrating that we are behaving, our behavior is improving in line with our valued behavior? So those were the three questions. It's a dashboard which every quarter uh, we populate. So we look at client improvement scores, uh, brand awareness scores uh, for the first question, better place to bank. Better place to work, we look at attrition, we look at engagement. How are we behaving? We look at things like inclusion index, innovation index, conduct, you know, what's happening to employee conduct. So in this entire journey, we've been able to monitor and, and see our progress. The latest results we've done, uh, to me, it's staggering. Um, our net promoter score, which was uh, plus two, three and a half, four years ago, is plus 12 now. So, so consistently, we have seen year-on-year -year improvement in our net promoter score. There's huge variability. It's plus 50 in pockets. Uh, it's minus in some areas. So we have clearly work to do. But collectively, our colleagues tell us that we are becoming a better place to work. On our client metrics, you look at brand awareness. You know, you look at our, our client satisfaction scores across most business segments have seen an improvement. To me, what satisfied me the most is the improvement we are seeing on creating a culture of inclusion and a culture of innovation. So we, as part of our annual survey, we do a couple of pulses and then a big one. We look at progress on our EVP metrics and we've had an improvement across all of them. Mm. But the areas which show consistently improvement is a challenge culture, a culture of innovation. So, you know, the piece around do we have a culture that supports innovation for our MD population has gone up by 15 points over this period, which given the business we are in, the disruption that's happening in our industry, the markets we are in is, is massive. So, so, you know, it is my firm belief that this work, it, it does show results. It requires consistency of and, and it requires, you know, if it's a flash and pan, it goes away. You know, it requires that rigor and consistency to make the results stick. And I guess that's one of the roles of the, of the CHRO and the yeah. HR leadership team is to is to really drive that employee experience and that continuous um, focus on it as yeah. well. Continuous focus on it and going back to what is it in service of. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's where sometimes in our function, we do ourselves a bit of disservice. It becomes so much around the product and the initiative as opposed to what is it in service of. Again, I, and it has to be in service of performance and greater client-centricity, which cannot be done if you have a, a superlative employee experience. So it's that power of narrative, yeah. which I believe is hugely important. So all this talk about in, about employee experience and a, a better deal for employees, what are some of the implications this has on some of the HR technology that we use? I mean, uh, it's massive. The implications on HR technology is sort of massive. And um, a lot of the work on technology in 
our industry and in Stanchart first started with uh, looking at technology on basic uh, HR service delivery, right? And and again, I think it's hugely important because you know the more you can make some of the uh, uh, the the operational work slicker, and and the more you can sort of align it to how people consume products externally, yeah. uh, the more you get noise out from the system. So you know the, the way uh, we are, you know we are changing our core uh, HR systems, but what we are doing is um, while replacing the core, we are adding on uh, things applications on the core, purely thinking of experience in mind. So you know we could change from our traditional uh, operating system to the one now. But what's really made the difference is having Walk Me sit on top of it, which actually sort of guides people in delivering a very different experience. So so that's happening to the core. The other area which we have picked up in a massive way is is this whole theme of what is HR in service of? Is HR in service of the top thousand leaders in the company who have always got white glove concierge sort of service? Or HR is in service of the the thousands of people, you know, in our case, 100,000 people who work in Standard Chartered globally. And that has been a big mindset shift for my own function, because clearly we are in service of 100,000 colleagues who day in and day out serve our customers in some of the toughest parts of the world. And that means thinking of people capability very, very differently. You know, I, I, thinking about how do we get continual learning, the idea of development growth, uh, really central to our proposition. To do it at that scale, you have to leverage technology. Yeah, you know, so there are several in- interesting experiments that we are doing currently. You know, we are piloting this idea of talent marketplace. Uh, so, you know, almost think of it as an internal LinkedIn yeah. uh, where where people can sort of pitch themselves, you know, people can pitch for roles and, and, and matching happens. But how cool would it be if somebody doesn't get the kind of roles that they are aspiring for, they automatically get uh, channeled to the kind of development they need to be able to. So, that gets to the whole learner experience, you know, moving away from learning being pushed from the center to actually, you know, a bit like how you consume uh, entertainment in Netflix, right? You go on Netflix and, you know, there are recommendations made to you on the basis of what you consume. We are piloting something very similar on learning, right? Um, And again, trying to link that to your career aspirations and and growth. So, So to me, what takes up a huge amount of work, as it should, is streamlining what I call core HR processes. But it's in the idea of how do we build capability? How do we build this idea of continual learning, growth, and development at the heart of our people proposition is where we are trying out uh, some very interesting innovative technologies. And of course, for all those sort of stuff, particularly the personalization stuff, you need that core underpinning of Good data, Agreed. good analytics. Great. So we're we're actually recommending the right things to the right people within the organisation based on the their needs, yeah. but also where they want to take their careers. I mean, uh, I, I couldn't stress the importance of that enough. Uh, you know, I I actually believe when you talk about future roles in HR, you know, uh, data scientists is going to be a category of people that would be uh, that would be a really prized skill in in HR and. Uh, 
I spoke about employee experience, getting somebody from a non-HR background. The other area where we are buying a, a huge amount of expertise is in the uh, data analytics space. Yeah. Um, and again, it also, in, in our business, which is all about managing risk as well, it also talks about people risk very differently. Mm. So, you know, traditionally, when I spoke about people risk, Within my business, I spoke about what number of jobs are vacant, you know, what is our attrition. I do talk about that, but actually what I really talk about now is what's the kind of capability needed for the future? What are the kind of skills needed for the future? Where do we have them? How do we build them versus buy? And a lot of that comes from really good use to, of data. And actually, the insights, uh, you know, the skill around pulling the right insights and building that narrative. So, so I think that's that's really, really important to have the right conversation. And you did some work around the sort of whole network analysis yeah. space as well at, at the bank? I mean, you know, on the culture journey, uh, clearly, once we define this, the first port of call were the senior leaders, you know, the sort of 1,200-odd MDs we have. We've done some really good, I think, leadership development work with them. But it became very clear to us that the influencers in the business are not always the senior most people, right? Um, so this idea of, you know, if you are a people leader in a op shop in Chennai or in an op shop in Tianjin, uh, managing a team of 500 people, you are perhaps much more of an influencer than, you know, a very senior individual sitting in a head office. Yep. So... So very quickly after leadership development at the top and setting the right tone at the top, we focused our energy on people leaders. So um, a, a lot of the stuff around people leaders. But when you start looking at that, a level of segmentation is needed. And one of the things that we are trying to think of, or again, experimenting very successfully in, in, in two large parts of our business, is trying to develop a heat map of network. So, you know, who are the people people gravitate to? How do we start thinking of influencers that is not driven by hierarchy? You know, how do we go figure out who those people are who either because of what they represent in terms of technical expertise or because of how they are seen as culture carriers in the bank? Are, pe are the people people gravitate to? And what do we do with those influencers in ensuring that they help us really embed the cultural transformation. So there's so many exciting technology solutions today available, you know, to start looking at those network analysis, uh, looking at how people sort of engage with each other beyond the traditional means. And we're deploying a few of them and trying to see which is the one that we want to then implement at scale. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating space. It's one I've been learning about for the last two or three years. And you know, as well as looking at influencers, you can start to find out how innovation happens, Absolutely. how different sales teams, for example, different banks, perhaps, how they how they drive more customer service okay. and the strength between the teams. And you can also find out people who are big influencers, but maybe at the risk of burnout as yeah. well. So you can try and prevent something about that. There's so many things that we could we could probably do another podcast on that. Agreed. One. So, and I find it fascinating because what it also does, going back to one of the biggest problems that traditional businesses like ours face is this hierarchical culture. And how do you then almost start moving away from it and yeah. start thinking of what does agile actually mean in practice? And, and again, it's 
coming to the power of data and insights, um, the kind of experiments you can run, right? You know, are those teams that work in 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 that network way more productive and more effective than teams that are working in a hierarchical way? What are the networks that are developing between teams that yeah. we are not? The big question of how does work really get done? You know, how does work really get done? sometimes looks very different to how we think it gets think done. It does, yeah. And the more insight you can get around how work really gets done, uh, I think there's a real opportunity uh, to, to, to try and sort of transform the culture uh, on a mass scale. And another use of network analytics is around um, inclusion and diversity. Now, I know Standard Chartered may well be headquartered in the UK, but obviously the vast bulk of your business is done in Asia, Africa and the Middle East. You know, what are some of the nuances involved um, for those those listening from the more developed world? What the nuances of HR and those sort, and also how do you capitalise on some of that that diversity as well um, and link it towards innovation, for example? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really good question. Obviously, something very close to to my own heart. Uh, some of the markets that I've had the privilege of working in and sort of seeing some of the cultural issues uh, up front. Uh, to me, the nuances are at three levels. The obvious one, different time zones, different languages, um, the, just the spread. Like yeah. I said, we are 60 countries. We employ, on last count, 125 different nationalities. So, so just the logistical challenge is the first nuance. The next level is where there are a set of cultural norms, local cultural norms, which could be on surface be in conflict with your global standards of behavior. You know, we, we talk about inclusion in a big way. We are in markets where homosexuality is illegal. You know, we are in markets where uh, women are treated very differently in workplaces than men. It is the cultural norm. And in that, when you have those differences of culture, trying to instill globally consistent standards of behavior without having it being ignored uh, is a second nuance. Mm. The third nuance, which I think is subtle, but, uh, but really important, is when we in the Western world talk about a create a culture of challenge, speaking up, non-hierarchy, it means very different things when you sit in London and New York to if you sit in South Korea. Right. You know, we did my team developed an app or, you know, it's called Feedback 365. It's a it's a it's an app on your phone which helps people give feedback to each other. But just real time feedback right after a meeting to peers. And we started tracking how many times people were giving feedback upwards. It's very little. And there was a big push that Bill, our chief executive, me, members of the management team did. Sometimes without realizing that in many cultures, giving feedback upwards would be not giving face to an elder. And that is a real nuance uh, that that we need to sort of recognize and contend with. And I think, you know, one of the advantages of having worked and lived in many of these markets is uh, moving away from being prescriptive to actually defining what standards look like and encouraging a conversation and debate. So, for example, when we launched our valued behaviors, um, we decided we are going to do it differently. And 
you know, when you launch something like valued behaviors in, in the business that I represent, most most often than not, it's a corporate memo. Uh, it's a, a, a big email from the chief executive. And sometimes there is an e-learning mandatory test that you need to pass to see you read it. And what we said was, all our people leaders, 14,000 of them, got a pack of cards with the valued behaviors on them and scenarios based around valued behaviors. And we said, get your teams and talk about the scenarios. Bring out those conflicts in the context of what are our standards, as opposed to us being prescripted from the center. So I think our response to the nuance has been that we will be very clear and explicit on the standards of behaviors, but as opposed to mandating and thou shall not do it, we will encourage an environment where people have that open conversation and debate, right? Diversity is hugely important to us, but the the one area we're going after in a big way is the idea of inclusion. And, And actually the idea of inclusion in some ways helps you address these nuances. It's to understand that we recognize each other's perspective. We both commit to living the standards of behaviors as described in our valued behaviors, while recognizing that the way we respond to it might be slightly different. So I think it's just that awareness and what does that mean in the way we engage with people so that we can bring them along in the journey as opposed to alienate them. Well, thank you. We, well, unfortunately, we're coming towards the end of the podcast now, but um, you know, it's been a fascinating conversation, certainly from my perspective. Um, so we end, we end with a question that we ask all our guests on the show. Um, what do you feel the future role of HR will be in 2025? And you can go further than that if you'd like to. Well, I, you know, I suspect you hear the same things again and again, said David. You know, uh, you know it, the, the obvious one is it's pretty clear that, that you know, human capital uh, people are a massive enabler of people's strategy. The role of HR has been and should be uh, to be, uh, you know, strategically helping in maximizing the value of of, of, of our human capital. But then if you start looking beyond that, that's when I start getting very interesting. Uh, interested. You know, we are the generation of HR leaders that are going to be able to create the environment for this generation that's coming into the workforce, learn, earn, grow. It's a massive responsibility. We are also the generation of HR leaders that will have to start providing solutions to future skills, the skill gap in majority of our markets, the growing gap between education and employability. And those are uh, the big challenges that are being faced and will be faced by HR leaders of our generation. And that's where I think we have an opportunity to really leave a legacy, right? So, you know, uh, at the most simplest of level, it's about commercial acumen. You know, how do you talk about sort of culture, employee experience as being at the heart of what businesses will look like and are looking like? But at the higher level, it's really, really starting to think about how do we get the new generation coming in, you know, learn, earn, grow but also what do we need to do now to start thinking of future skills that are going to be needed in the world and how do we start getting ready for it? And I do believe really exciting times for the function. Uh, And I think there is a real opportunity for HR leaders of our generation to, to grab this opportunity and leave a real legacy.
Yeah, definitely an exciting time for the the function, I think, and certainly even more exciting, I think, as as the as the next five years unfold. Tanush, thank you very much for being a thank guest you. on the show. How can our listeners stay in touch with you? Well, I am on LinkedIn, so you can see me, Tanush Kapilashami, on LinkedIn. Uh, SC Bank uh, is also on Instagram, and and Standard Chartered is is also on LinkedIn, Standard Chartered Bank. And I would encourage you to go and and visit. Um, our social media channels to just keep abreast with with all the exciting things that are happening in the bank. Well, we look forward to continuing to hear more good stories coming out of the work that you and the team are doing there. So, Tanush, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks a lot, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe by your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. So if you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news and learning on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode and indeed series four of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. We'll be taking a short break for just one week before series five launches on the 12th of November, when our guest will be a very special guest too, John Boudreau which will be about the future of work and its implications for organisations and HR. So you definitely won't want to miss that one. In the meantime, you can catch up with the other episodes in Series 4. Keith McNulty, Lena Nair, Sarah Johnson and Anna Tavis by visiting myhrfuture.com and clicking on the podcast tab. See you next time.